Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Welcome to In Her Shoes. I'm Lindsay Peoples, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of The Cut. On this show, I get to talk to people that we love and admire, or some that we just find interesting. We'll explore how they found their path and what maybe have gotten in their way, and how they brought others along now that they've arrived. My guest today is Jamila Weidman. She has a fascinating career trajectory that spanned law and basketball and mentorship specifically has been a thread that stitched through all of it. Jamila was a student athlete at Stanford, and after playing for four years in the WNBA for the Los Angeles Sparks, she went on to attend NYU Law. As an attorney, she represented incarcerated people and low-income populations facing eviction. Now, Jamila works for the NBA as the Senior Vice President for Player Development. We're going to hear more about what her current role entails, but first we want to take it back to the start of her career. So, Jamila, we actually have a clip that we want to play for you. It's of your father, John Edgar Weidman, being interviewed on Charlie Rose about what it was like to watch your career blossom. She came out of Stanford yeah. and... Uh, Big star at LA. Three years out of four, they went to the Final Four already. Yeah. Uh, she was clearly the leader of that team. She had rough times there, but she prevailed, and, and her senior year was a great year. She was an All-American. Um, then she went to play for the L.A. Sparks in the WNBA, played in the first professional women's game ever. So you can imagine. I thought, I thought I'd never be happier or more proud when I saw her run out the first time onto Stanford's court with uh, 9,000 people screaming, screaming in the gym. But you were there? I was there, absolutely yeah. there. Um, but then that WNBA game was exciting, just as exciting in its own way, because it was clearly history, yeah. watching history, and she was there. So that clip was of your father, John Edgar Weidman, and obviously a groundbreaking college athlete himself. Uh, we'll talk more about him later, but we wanted to kind of start with that clip and tell me what your earliest memory of playing basketball with your family and your father was. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's it's amazing to hear his voice. His voice is really synonymous with um, my experience in the game. I would say the game, probably for that reason, feels as as close of a relationship as I as I have with my family, um, and my earliest memories are uh, going to the gym in Laramie, Wyoming, um, to the university rec gyms, uh, where every single Saturday morning, every single Sunday morning, my dad and my brothers and I would show up for for the pickup games that were there, and I was um, probably no taller than his knee um, when my first memories um, start being in the gym, smelling the gym, hearing the rhythm of the basketball. And my primary memory was trying to get shots up 
while the five on five game was at the other end of the court and then trying to get off the court in time before uh, they stampeded back down towards my end. I love um, that you just talk about your family with so much reverence. And I was just noting that, like, I think obviously family has meant so much to you. What would you say has has changed so much? Obviously, you've gotten older and and now your career has shifted. Um and now, obviously, in in this big role in NBA, what, how does that all feel in, in retrospect? I think in many ways, the game of basketball has been a little bit of a soundtrack for us. I think that uh, whether it's talking about the game, watching games together, uh, playing with one another. Of course, when I was younger, that was, you know, putting up shots in, in the driveway um, and as that evolved, you know, I uh, would show up at my brother's house and North Carolina, and he would take me to his games in downtown Durham to play. Um, and now, you know, as as we get closer to the NBA um, All-Star game in the second half of the season, I'll be over at my dad's house for sure uh, for some of those games. He's, he's still a tried and true Sixers fan. Um, so, you know, they break his heart all the time. But, um, <laughs> you know, so I, I think it, you know, it has always been a really safe and familiar space for us to just engage at a level that doesn't require a lot of conversation, doesn't require a lot of words. Um, we're actually for for a family that has a lot of words and in terms of the way that we relate to each other, I think um, we're, we're, we really move well um, in experience. And so the game has always been that for us um, and has continued to be that in different ways, even as as all of us have uh, gotten further and further away from our ability to actually break it down on the court. <laughs> I want to take it back a little and and, and go back in time. Um, talk about your days at Stanford. You played for Tara Vanderveer, who just became the most winningest coach in college basketball history. Um, what originally drew you to play for Stanford? Yeah, a great question. I went to high school in Massachusetts and I had played my um, AAU ball on the East Coast and my exposure to the wider world of um, of women's sports and women's sports in college came through the AAU national tournaments. And honestly, that's the first time I, I even started to think about basketball as a pathway to get uh, free college, um, which is honestly how I thought about it. There was not a professional league in the United States when I was in high school. And so I really thought of the game as a ticket to the best education I could get and would open doors to schools that my parents never could have afforded to to pay for. So when Stanford came knocking, you know, they were, it was a while ago, they were on the heels of their first national championships. And so the idea of playing somewhere where I could play at the top level of the game and and um, at an educational institution that um, was amazing was really good and I'll be honest like I made that choice as a sixteen and a half seventeen year old kid and there was also something thrilling about the adventure of getting on a plane and having six hours pass between where I grew up and where my home and my family was and landing in a place where they had, you know, pink houses and turquoise houses and golden hills. It was it was like landing on Mars. And at that age, um, there was something really exciting about the adventure that it seemed like Stanford would be. You were also picked by the Sparks in the inaugural WNBA draft. Um, take us back to such, you know, a history-making season, a pivotal moment in your life, um, and and what were some of the highlights throughout your time? It was a total surprise to be a senior in college and to be suddenly presented with this opportunity to get 
drafted. We didn't know that there was actually going to be a viable league until really late in the spring of my senior year. We had heard rumors coming down that there was going to be a league. And so when I got a phone call that I had to be on the phone for the inaugural draft, um, that, that draft wasn't televised. And actually, it was long ago enough that the connectivity of cell phones was a little bit suspect. And so I actually took the call for the live draft in Coach Vanderveer's house. And the place that she got the best signal was in her coat closet. And so I was actually standing in the coat closet at, at uh, Coach Vanderveer's house when I uh, got the call from Val Ackerman and Renee Brown saying I was the third pick um, of, of the Sparks. And it was almost unreal. And I remember celebrating in the moment. My whole team was over at the house and everything was just so new um, that it was exciting and incredible. And I was also like, and what is this thing? What, what is this going to be like? Yeah, for sure. I also want to talk about your mentorship program, because as you were experiencing so many things um, and the newness of that, you also took the time out to really help other people, which I think is is such a testament to your work ethic. So tell us about Hooping with Jamila and, you know, what was the mission of the organization and how you were able to balance that as a player as well? Well, when I came out of college, there was a, a you know, a mini competition between a couple of the shoe companies who were uh, looking for me to to be an endorser. That whole world was totally new for me. I had no idea how to even vet to make a decision um, around which, which company I would pick. And so I actually ended up using the fact that I wanted to try to have impact on kids and specifically wanted to try to have impact on kids that didn't necessarily have a lot of visibility where uh, sort of youth programs lived. And when I talked to Nike about the potential for Hooping with Jamila, which really was initially focused as an opportunity for young women who were in incarcerated situations in, in the Los Angeles area, knew I wanted to do something around the team market, Nike really jumped in and offered funding and offered support and resources to help me build that program. Um, and so for me, it was it was the opportunity of the endorsement was the chance to to try to build something and and have some impact right away. Yeah, I mean, even after you left the WNBA, you carried your advocacy work um, and obviously focusing your career as attorney, um, working with the justice system and working on housing inequity issues. Can you talk about just the connective tissue between those two phases of your career and, and why you chose to go in that direction? I think one of the silver linings of being a woman athlete at the time that I was in high school and then moving into college is really I, I had a mind towards what I wanted to do when I was done playing. And in some ways, the WNBA was like an interruption of a path that I had already started to dream about and imagine. And so my W career, to be perfectly honest, was actually a little shorter than I think I would have anticipated or hoped for. So I, I ended up being in the league for, for four seasons. And I always knew that I wanted to go back to law school. That seed had been planted by my mom, actually, who attended law school when I was in high school. She was an incredible inspiration as somebody who herself had always had a dream to, to go to law school and put it off as, as she raised us kids um, ended up going back, was an incredible student, an incredible advocate, and I had a real front row seat to watching her do that. And so when my when my career was actually just starting, I, I went ahead and applied to schools and deferred my enrollment to NYU. 
Um, but I picked NYU Law School because a gentleman by the name of Brian Stevenson was there, uh, was a professor and offered up the opportunity for students to be involved in a capital defense project, which I knew was the direction I wanted to head. Ended up being an incredible connection for me. And that's what launched my career when I first became a staff attorney at the Equal Justice Initiative uh, when I graduated. Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere. You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight. And the question is, who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet. This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how? So let's let's move now to to currently in your work at the NBA, obviously um, doing incredible work and holistically helping players and their lives outside of the game. You know, obviously the, the league is a mix of guys who don't come from money or some that do or, you know, some that have been exposed to certain things, um, especially when they're starting out and really need that support. What has been your thoughts around helping guide them to think about post-league future and just support and resources as they try to navigate all of it? Yeah, I think, you know, in my in my role leading the player development group at the NBA, um, I really see the fact of that of this group existing and the department existing as representing an investment in the reality that players are really at the center of the game, but also at the center of the business. And I think that when you're in an organization where that is true, where you've got human beings who at the end of the day are are sort of the beating heart of what you're doing, there's in some sense a responsibility to invest in their lives, not just in terms of them and their identity as performers, but simply in them as human beings. And I think our player development work is founded on the notion that um, the guys that come into the league are extraordinary performers and extraordinary athletes, but they're people first. Um, and I think for me, what that means is our job really is to listen, is to hear from guys about who they are and where they are and what they need and to react accordingly. Our, our mission statement with the group is, you know, we say we create space for player aspirations to thrive. And I think what's embedded in that is a notion that the player is always at the center of what we do and that a lot of our work is about making sure that they have the the room and the safe space to evolve in all of their talents, not just as players. And I think, you know, certainly as a former player, I know there's no bright line between what is on-court performance and what your life looks off of it. And so in many ways, we see a straight line between how we're able to support and provide resources to guys and the fact that that makes them the best players they can be, but it also means that they're able to 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 fill and live the the rich lives that they walked in the door with. Any examples of ways that you feel like you've been able to provide support or things that you've been excited about in doing this work that that you can give us? Yeah, you know, I think uh, you know one of the one of the things that that we do is the rookie transition program, which really focuses on guys in the very moment that they are coming into the league 
and we run uh, a program together uh, with our colleagues at the uh, NBA Players Association um, that's an intensive opportunity to bring guys together and try to help them navigate those initial steps. I think some of the most rewarding work actually that we've done in that way has been through our Mind Health program. Um, the Mind Health program is an NBA initiative and program that is essentially the league's mental health and wellness imprint on the NBA, on the WNBA, on the G League, on the BAL, on the 2K. And honestly, that work and watching the evolution of how players, coaches, teams, league staff have begun to invest differently in holistic wellness as a core part of how we think about both performance and also just health has probably been one of um, the most impactful evolutions that I've been able to witness and be a part of here at the league. Well, congratulations on all your work. Well, I appreciate that. I will I will say that one of the opportunities that you have in a role like the one I have is actually to find people that know more and are are more talented than you. And and uh, Dr. Kenza Gunter, who's the director of Mind Health, is somebody that uh, we brought in a couple of years ago to to really assert a vision around that mind health work. And I think, you know, for me is is one of the pieces uh, uh, I'm most proud of is honestly uh, allowing um, her vision and imprint to to spread wide um, among all players, teams, staff, all of us, really. I do have to circle back to your father since this is our, our first Black History Month interview for the month. Um, so we have to give respect where it's due. Um, obviously, his achievements, very long, too many to list. <laughs> um, but the few that obviously came to mind, he was one of Penn's first Black, black basketball players, earned all Ivy status. He taught African-American literature at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and I know that he helped establish uh, their Black Studies program. I was watching one of the, the YouTube videos of teaching earlier, um, and then won the Penn Faulkner Award twice for his fiction writing. Um, so when you think about that, you know, what do you think about his imp- his impact, you know, on your careers? Um, that's an, an impressive recall um, of, a, of a lot of the, the moments of his achievements. You know, I, I really know him as my father, first and foremost. I know him as one of the people in my life who I had the first experience with who really just invited me to to live and dream in my own skin. And I think that gift is very hard won, especially coming from him as a Black man, as a Black academic, as a Black athlete, uh, having come up in the period that he did um, and having sustained, I think, and protected in himself a lot of qualities that are really hard to protect as a Black person in, in our world and in our culture but that he managed to pass along to to me and I think to my brothers and to his students uh, a really vital sense of why curiosity is something that you should safeguard in yourself, why imagination is something that you should safeguard in yourself, why continuing to, to try to reach into the lives of other people is actually as much about your survival as theirs. Um, Those are the kind of lessons that were not even so much spoken, but I think were animated by the choices that he made as a person and and in his own professional life. I love that. So, Jamila, thanks for coming through. Where can people follow along for your work and connect with you further? Well, I would uh, I'm I'm a newly um, uh, baptized LinkedIn member. (laughs) And uh, so that's that's an easy way to find me. I'm a latecomer to all social media, um, so you won't find me anywhere else on social media. But 
Um, for for a sense of the work that I that I care about, I would send you to mindhealth.nba.com, um, which is uh, I think just a manifestation of um, a lot of the pieces I've spoken to today that uh, that I care about, um, and certainly uh, in our player development work, we have an amazing team here at the league. Um, and we'll happily share back with you guys a, a couple of more ways you can find us and, and find the kind of work that we're trying to do as we continue to invest in in, in the young men and the young women and, and old men and the old women that represent the incredible group of, of players that are at the center of our moment. Thanks for listening to In Her Shoes. Today's episode was produced and edited by Nishat Kurwa. Our engineer is Brandon McFarland. I'm your host, Lindsay Peoples. In Her Shoes is a production of The Cut and New York Magazine. 